This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Simon Kemp, CEO of Capios, in a two-part series on the state of digital media across Asia-Pacific. In the first part of our conversation, we discuss the major key trends of web, mobile, and social across Asia-Pacific in 2017. Hi, Simon. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. How have you been? I've been great, thanks. It's been a while since our last conversation. Yes, we do. I was just away in Shenzhen and I was actually busy using a lot of different kind of social media tools, just like crossing from one channel to the other. And uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm talking to Simon Kemp, founder and CEO of Capios, global consultant from We Are Social and most well-known for Digital in Asia Pacific Report 2017. Actually, you do for the whole world too, right? Correct, yeah. So each January, I'll produce a global digital report. But um, as you mentioned, I just did a specific focused report on Asia Pacific about a month ago. So we've got some brand new numbers that we're going to discuss today. And since our last conversation, what have you been up to? So we spoke, what, six months ago about that? And in that time, most of the work that I've been doing is actually helping clients all around the world to make sense of a lot of the numbers that appeared in those reports. So I think a lot of your listeners will relate to the fact that digital change is so fast and that there is so much stuff out there on the internet telling you what to do on the internet that it can be quite difficult to make sense of what the right thing for your business actually is. So most of my work in the last six months has been helping people to cut through the noise, uh, make sense of the nonsense and focus on the things that actually matter to their business. So do you find that a lot of these brands, when they think about these digital media tools, are they try to center around one thing or they look at a few things or are they still at this very adverse mode against trying to adopt social media tools to help them with their marketing? So I think that the third one has changed. I think that more and more brands are understanding that social media is an opportunity that they would be foolish to ignore. That doesn't necessarily mean that they become true converts, but I think that they realize that this is not a passing fad and that if they ignore it, it's a bit like people in the 90s wondering whether they should ignore the internet. You know, <laughs> I think people have kind of realized now that it would be it would be silly to not take advantage. But to the other two bits of your question, I think it's really interesting. It very much depends on where the business is in the world and also the experience of the people within that business in terms of what they use themselves and what they've also used for business before. So I think as especially if you look at the Asia Pacific region, if you move from one country to the other, you still see some quite significant differences in the social media platforms that people use in terms of the kinds of content that they're creating and sharing. And um, so you mentioned you've been up in China recently and as you will no doubt have seen it it's still very much um, a unique experience in China. You've got WeChat that dominates. You obviously do have a few other platforms that are relatively popular and widely used in China. But realistically, if you're going to succeed on a mass level in social media in China, you definitely want to be 
exploring WeChat, but then WeChat is so much more than just social media as well. So the lines have started to blur quite sort of significantly between what we once thought of as social networking. You've then got mobile messengers and chat apps, and then increasingly you're seeing more and more aspects being woven into the story. So even if we just look at what's happening with Facebook, if you've been listening to what Mark Zuckerberg has been saying over the past six months or so, you'll know that things like augmented reality, even and virtual reality are going to be a coming an increasing sort of feature within the Facebook world. So I think we're going to move away from the sort of classical social media thing that we've seen over the last decade, I suppose, since Facebook first became public properly in 2007, which is when social media really took off. And I think we'll start to see that evolve quite rapidly over the next two to three years. So today we are here to talk about digital in Asia Pacific 2017, because I enjoy reading all your reports, so I want to start off first by asking you to give an overview of the numbers on digital to September 2017 in your most recent report. And I think one of the interesting things is that maybe you might want to talk about your global report first and then scale it down to the Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, that's right. In that digital report, which is available for free, we'll give you the links to that at the end of the podcast. But So we always start off with a global overview, so giving you the perspective of where the rest of the world is going, if you like, in digital. So as of September, so obviously these numbers are already slightly out of date, we reported that there were almost 4 billion internet users. We've not quite reached that milestone yet, and actually the, the current growth trend suggests that we'll get there probably around the end of the first quarter of next year. You know, rapidly approaching another impressive milestone. As we reported back in January in the global report, already well over half of the world's population now using the internet, though. And when I say half of the world's population, that includes newborn babies and people over the age of 100. So in in terms of people that are using the internet, we've now got to the stage where you are very justified in saying most of the world now uses the internet. When it comes to social media, the numbers are slightly lower. So we just passed the 3 billion milestone a couple of months ago. So 3 billion people around the world using social media in the past 30 days, which is you know it's still a pretty decent result, 41% of the world's population using social media. Mobile has completely taken off. And if you think about the fact that it was only really 20 years ago that mobile phones became a thing that people could use at a relatively affordable cost. We've already reached the stage now where 5 billion people around the world use those on a most likely daily basis, more than two thirds of the world's population using a mobile phone today. So those are the the broad categories. We then break things down into things like mobile social users, and there's all sorts of other numbers in there. But those are the headlines. And I think in, in terms of the sort of the standout stories from those numbers, the bit that really surprised me when I was putting this report together was that some of those growth rates are actually still accelerating. And it always fascinates me. Every year I expect to get to that stage where I kind of have to report the the slightly disappointing news that the internet and social media have become so ubiquitous that they're not growing fast anymore. But in actual fact, the speed of growth of social media adoption has actually accelerated even within 2017. So when we reported the growth rate back in January, we were looking at roughly 12 new users every second. And by the time we got to September, that had grown to 13 new users every second. Now, that's obviously only one new user extra every second. But when you multiply that across even just the number of seconds in an hour, that's 3,600 new users just like that. So you can imagine how quickly that sort of growth rate takes you into big, big millions of numbers. I think in today's world, it's actually quite 
interesting that most people access the internet through the mobile phone. Do you think that at some point people will actually merge mobile and desktop into one category because for internet access? Because it's actually getting very irrelevant to talk about desktop. I think desktop is not even less than 10% of what how the world access the internet. Yeah, so let's start off with a bit of statistics to sort of feed into that. The latest numbers that Facebook are reporting suggest that only 1% of their total global audience is desktop only. So 99% of their audience uses mobile at least once a month. I'm guessing it's significantly higher than once a month, obviously. But you're right, mobile has become sort of the primary device that we use for most day-to-day activities. I think if, if you look at the way that computers, and that's, it, feel, it already feels like a sort of out-of-date term. If I talk about computers, I feel a little bit like I'm talking in the 1990s. But <laughs> this idea of desktops, laptop, you know, and then there's sort of hybrid models that are on that. I think that the only two things that are keeping us bound to those devices are where we need to do a significant amount of typing. Obviously, a, a large keyboard is a bit more comfortable than using the, the rather smaller screen, you know, keyboards that we get on our screens on something like a smartphone. And then also there's the processor power. But I think increasingly as we move into sort of software as a service, much as that might be a bit of a cliched term, you know, this idea that there are things like even something as as common as Google Docs, where a lot of the processing takes place away from the machine that you're actually using. And it's actually just as effective to use Google Docs on a mobile device as it is to use it on a laptop. I think we're increasingly going to see a world where it, it's it's quite easy to blend from one machine to the other. There are inevitably going to be some exceptions to that. So very processor heavy activities like uh, video processing or creating music or stuff like that. And also if you're looking to do very intricate visual activities. So if you're a photo editor, it can be quite difficult to do that on a small handheld device. But I think for, for most people, especially when it comes to using the internet and just browsing and reading and all that kind of stuff, it, we're already seeing that the vast majority of that activity already takes place on a mobile device. So yeah, I think we're, we're probably going to be in a situation where mobile becomes the number one device for almost everything. And I think there's in particular some evolutionary things going on in the world of technology that are going to accelerate that. And the most important of those is voice control, because voice control will stop us needing to use keyboards in the way that we do today. So if anybody's tried dictation into Google Docs in the last few months, you'll know that the level of accuracy has increased incredibly. I mean, I cannot get my head around how easy it is now to dictate things into Google Docs. So a lot of the time when I'm sort of just jotting down my thoughts or if I'm taking notes when I'm preparing presentations and stuff, I've got that Google Docs system sat next to me and I'm just recording my thoughts by speaking to it. Even if we're just doing things like a search, you know, you can now do searches using voice as well. And when you look at things like Amazon's Echo and all of the other sort of voice controlled devices that we're seeing coming into the home, like it's increasingly going to be something that we feel more comfortable doing. I think a lot of people that grew up in the world of typing things into their computer, there's still this like feeling of weirdness of talking to your computer. It feels almost like it's a bit of madness. But I think if you look at the younger generation, especially if you look at the under 10s, if you look at the way that kids are using devices now, the idea of typing something into a keyboard just seems alien to them. They look at you like you're some sort of dinosaur. And in in a sort of Asian perspective in particular, um, you've got the added challenges of trying to type in Asian characters into a keyboard. Obviously, if you if you type in Roman characters, it's an awful lot simpler. But if you're trying to type in, say, Mandarin Chinese, it's a 
bit of a pain a lot of the time to try and type that in, especially on a mobile device, which is one of the reasons why we see, especially with WeChat use, almost everybody has moved away from text-based messaging to recording small audio snippets. And so, you know, WeChat, much as it's a chat app, it's much more of a voice chat app than it is of a text-based thing that people might be used to in like a North American market where they're, they're still almost SMS dependent. I just wanted to ask you, because I think you gave a global numbers just as a follow-up, what are the numbers on digital in terms of the Asia-Pacific market? Do you see more acceleration or do you see much more really, it's just a mobile first world and it's almost like 0.5% is a desktop world? So uh, yeah, there, there are two slightly different points in there. I think that the acceleration in APAC is definitely continuing. I think especially around Southeast Asian markets, we're seeing some very impressive growth coming through in there. If you want to dig deeper into those numbers, fortunately, we've got breakdowns for every single country in the region. So you can see how things are growing in Indonesia versus Malaysia versus Myanmar. But yeah, I'm always excited by the growth in APAC. Obviously, I live in this part of the world now, so it's uh, it's home for me. So it's nice to see that our neighbors are, are growing so fast. You've got some countries where growth has obviously reached a certain level and it's not really going to accelerate much more. So markets like Singapore, where digital is almost pervasive, you're not going to see impressive growth numbers because the existing user numbers are already, already so high. But yeah, if you look at a market like Myanmar, which, you know, if you think about this in context, five, six years ago, the internet was blocked. You weren't allowed to use social media and almost nobody had their own mobile phone. So now we're in a situation where the numbers are growing, you know, 30, 40, 50% a year in terms of adoption. And it's just staggering to see what's happening there. That has led to some challenges. So there are some concerns about the levels of people's ability to distinguish between fake news and real news, where they've not had a sort of, if you like, an evolving introduction to the internet when they've learned what what's correct and what's not. So I think that, you know, much, with that growth there, there are going to be some challenges. I think, you know, with, with absolute power comes absolute responsibility. And I think if you look at the challenges that people like Facebook and Google are having in the US at the moment when it comes to regulating things like fake news, I think they're going to have a slightly different challenge in this part of the world, which is making sure that people are digitally literate and they understand the dangers of cybercrime and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I want to temper my enthusiasm because it's very easy for me to get very over-enthusiastic about this kind of stuff and say, isn't it amazing? There are some challenges we need to address as well. But to the second bit of your question, yes, I mean, mobile is by far the number one device in this part of the world. And the more you go into the developing economies, and I don't mean that in any way judgmentally, but more you go into the developing economies, the more mobile is predominant in terms of access. And you've got a lot of countries where actually laptops and desktops simply are not something that people own. It's not even that they've chosen not to use them. You're looking at sort of, you know, a very, very low level of ownership ownership or even access to a traditional computing device in places, again, like Myanmar or Cambodia. Have you seen any key annual digital trends that you have not seen before in the previous years for this year? There's nothing particularly stand out. I think these things start to creep in, you know, so it, rather than it being an abrupt change from one year to the next, you sort of see emphasis changing from one year to the next. So there was nothing particularly stand out in terms of newness in this year's APAC report, but we did have a little bit of a deep dive into the, the digital divide, if you like. So the fact that there are still some very distinct differences in levels of access around the region and also around the rest of the world as well. But obviously, because this is an APAC report, we're, we're looking particularly at the, the differences between, let's say, India versus China and Japan. 
In your analysis, you talk about the digital divide. And one of the things I thought about is that you came up with some reasons for that. Can you elaborate which parts of Asia are still not connected to the rest of the world? And what are the factors that are responsible for that? Yeah, so this is something that we'll actually be exploring in a lot more detail as part of the global report in January as well. But I think it was very clear in my mind when we were looking through the numbers for the APEC report that this is a very significant issue in this part of the world. So the lowest levels of access to the internet, if you like, in the world are still in Africa, but very close to that is the South Asian subcontinent. So if you look at the access levels in India, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, they are still only around about one in three people has access to the internet today. Now, that that's still much more encouraging than it was even just a few years ago. But when you compare that to the access levels in places like Singapore and Hong Kong and Japan, where access levels are much higher, you do end up with this digital divide, as a lot of people on the Internet have been calling it. Now, there's there's a few reasons why this digital divide has occurred. And this is actually something that the United Nations have picked up as part of their sustainable development goals as well. So you know, this is something that we had a discussion with UNESCO recently about what can be done to help accelerate the adoption in those sort of underserved cultures and countries, if you like. So there's four things that kind of came out. A lot of it comes down to the infrastructure. So in particular, if you look at places like rural India, there simply is not the capability within the mobile network to deliver digital data. And then at the same time, the people that live in those areas perhaps don't have access to sufficiently powerful machines such as smartphones that would enable them to take advantage of that data even if they could get it. So sort of the combination of the infrastructure and the devices, and when I say devices, I mean both the handset and the data plan that goes with it. That's the, the main driver of low levels, if you like. So it's the main barrier that we need to overcome. But there are a couple of other things as well. In particular, content that caters to people with lower levels of literacy. So unfortunately, within places like India, there's still a number of, you know, a considerable number of people that cannot read and write. And if you think about it, that makes the Internet quite a prohibitive place for them. If you can't read, life is particularly challenging. And that gets even more complicated when you think about the fact that much of the content that is on the Internet is in a language that they don't speak anyway. So a lot of, especially if you look around India, the number of local languages that people speak, it's still a very dispersed kind of cultural landscape when it comes to culture. So if there's no content in their language on the internet then it's not a great deal for them there it's kind of like traveling to a foreign country and trying to have conversations with people you don't you don't speak the same language as it becomes very difficult and you know, there's not really much incentive there so there, there are lots of ways that we can get past that obviously the infrastructure challenges depend on some fairly significant financial investments. But when you look at what companies like Facebook and Google are doing, they are trying to address that. Not always getting it culturally right. So if you think back to the the rows that Facebook were having with India this time last year about trying to offer them free access to certain kinds of Facebook and people becoming quite upset that it was what Facebook defined as the internet rather than ubiquitous access to everything that was on. It was a very restricted kind of subset of internet properties. And Google with its, its fantastic fantastic ideas like sending out the balloons that are going to beam down Wi-Fi. It sounds very sort of Star trek in my mind that we're going to have these laser beams of internet connection 
floating above us. But, you know, these, these companies, whether it's telcos, whether it's the big digital companies like Google and Facebook, they, they are going to need to be the ones that really invest in making this available. And obviously, from their perspective, there's a big commercial incentive to doing that as much as it is about the more societal benefits of having access. But then I think it comes down to all of us, I suppose, as well, where we see opportunities to engage those audiences to think about what is it that they're going to want and need when it comes to accessing the content. So my thoughts would be that there needs to be more audio-based content. I'd like to say video, but inevitably when we're talking about these places where things like the speed of data connectivity and also the cost of data, that can make it incredibly difficult. It's not going to be rich video that's going to be the first thing that engages these people unless something dramatic changes about the cost of data plans. But also just making sure that the devices that are available there are able to be powered by voice control. So one of the things that the United Nations was talking about was the importance of being able to use voice to power financial services on a smartphone. So quite interestingly, I was uh, I phoned DBS myself yesterday because I wanted to check something on my own account, and they've now launched a biometric scanning of your voice. Now, obviously, that's Singapore; it's one of the world's most technologically advanced countries. But the fact that the fact that the banks are now doing voice biometric checks on your identity and that you can see how that was going to pave the way to some incredible opening of opportunities for people that can't write or can't type things into their devices if we can just check based on their voice then suddenly things like protection become a lot easier so i'm in danger of going down rabbit holes and waffling along a bit here so i'll I'll probably hand it back to you for a question now no no no. i think it's a very interesting point that you talk about voice versus the text internet before even evolving in video is the same reason why I have never tried to do video for Analyze Asia because I, I'm trying to get down to the file size and hopefully technology <laughs> could solve that problem yeah. to bring my file size down to 5 megabit because that's the only way for me to penetrate into markets that are very high population based where the internet is very difficult to access. Yeah. One interesting step which I really enjoyed from your analysis was that I think one in three people within Asia Pacific are still not connected to the internet based on those infrastructure problems that they are having. Am I right in in that assessment? Yeah, so uh, if you look at the the actual sort of APAC-wide numbers, we've still not quite reached 50% penetration around the region here. So one in two people still not connected to the internet around the region. But I think in in particular, when you look at the subcontinent, it's only one in three people that are connected. So two-thirds still don't have access, which in my mind, it's an incredible shame. It might sound a little bit like a first world problem. The funny thing is whenever I produce these reports and I publish them on the internet, you'll get people from very comfortably developed nations in the West that come in and say, why are you being so sort of strange about your analysis of the internet? I don't think that people that are struggling to feed themselves need access to mobile phones and the internet. And it's like you've completely misunderstood the point. You in your comfortable Western world where you have your smartphone and it's where you check up on what your friends are eating for lunch and where you play Candy Crush. That is not what we're talking about here. The internet for somebody in rural India gives them access to education, gives them access to finance and the vast, vast majority of these people don't have access to bank accounts. Um, The only way that they can get any kind of finance beyond cash is through a mobile device or through some kind of connected device. It's the way that they check up on weather, which, you know, for us means we might avoid a rain shower on the way to work. But for these guys, it's critical information that's maybe going to save their harvest and therefore their livelihood for the entire next year. So you you get an awful lot of people with these very sheltered views that come in and say, stop 
inflicting your first world problems on these poor rural communities. And I think it's a very, very important task that we've got to educate the rest of the developed Western world, that the internet is not a flippant way of passing the time while you're waiting for the bus. It is a crucial necessity that is going to help to lift these people out of a lot of the barriers that are keeping them in poverty. And, you know, even something as basic as just allowing me to talk to other people, the social inclusion for somebody who is in a remote village, the opportunity to talk to people in different parts of the world has massive emotional benefits and then you've obviously also got the, the financial and commercial benefits that the internet brings as well so I, I guess is this is a good time to actually take a break and then basically we'll come back with the second part because there's some more very interesting stuff that we want to talk about very good